Oh, good morning. Oh, man, so glad to be uh, back. Uh, I was out last week, um, but uh, nevertheless, you guys were taken care of by Nathaniel. He did such a great job. Could you guys give him a big hand? He doesn't like it, but I don't care. Um, he did such a wonderful job, man. He just uh, swung it out of, the, out of the park. That's the correct phrase, right? Swung it out of the park. Swung it out of the park. And, uh, you know, so uh, that's what it is. Knocked it out of the park. Though I'm glad to be back in the pulpit. But nevertheless, he set the bar. And so, man, we'll see. He hooked me up with some rope. So we'll see if I swing or hang. Um, My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. If you are new, just a couple of things before we dive in. Uh, Number one, there should be these connect cards on your chairs. Um, And we'd love to hang out with you. Please fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket or in the connect area uh, in the back. Um, If you're not down to hang yet, we'd love to pray for you. So please tell us how we can pray for you on those cards. In addition to that, uh, man, if you don't have a Bible or you know someone that could use a Bible, please take them. They're also in the rows, excuse me, and in the connect desk in the back. That is our gift to you or to your friend or family member, whoever you'd like to hook them, uh, whoever you'd like to hook up with, uh, with a Bible. Um, with that being said, we're going to find ourselves, if you'd like to open or load your Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Now, while you go ahead and go there, I'll ramble a little bit more just to kind of give you uh, an update as to what's been going on in light of our series uh, in Philippians. Now, if you look behind me, the name of the series is called Citizens. One of the verses that we're going to walk through today, verse 20, is actually going to be Uh, the crux verse for us in Philippians, where Paul talks about our citizenship. As Christians, we are citizens of heaven. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll, I'll, I'll jump into that in just a moment. But that is ultimately going to be the crux verse of our time today, or really the central verse of this series in Philippians. Philippians was written by a man named Paul. He's writing to the church in Philippi uh, from a Roman prison. Philippi is about 800 miles away from where he's at, and he's writing to them. And over the course of our time, you should or will have noticed that he will walk through several central themes in this letter. He walks through joy. He walks through unity. He walks through uh, humility. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we closed out chapter 2, and chapter 2 was this giant chapter, for lack of a better word, or this giant section where Paul walked us through several examples of what humility is and who really encompasses or embodies humility. He gave examples of Jesus. He gave uh, himself as an example by way of sacrifice. Uh, And he gave the example of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. As we've walked into chapter three, uh, one of the things that we encountered at the beginning of chapter three was one of the greatest testimonies that we see in all of scripture, where Paul lays out who he was before he knew Christ. And ultimately says that who he was and what he had gained and what he had done was a loss. He counted it as a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. 
right? And so what we walked through in that time was that Paul's priorities, when Christ called him to himself, Paul's priorities now changed. Just like for us as Christians, once we weren't Christians, then we became Christians when Christ saved us, our priorities now change. And the priority was that Jesus is our chief pursuit. That was kind of the big, uh, the end game, the goal of that time. And then last week when Nathaniel preached through verses 12 through 16, somewhere around there, when he preached through that, he gave the practical working of what it meant to have Jesus as our chief pursuit. He walked through what it looked like in uh, athletic terms or athletic analogies. He gave what it looked like to keep Jesus as the prize, as the goal. This is what it's going to look like for us in our daily life if we are to have Jesus as our chief pursuit. And again, he did a wonderful job. In this section of chapter 3, Paul is ultimately going to uh, bring everything together in light of the truth that he has spoken and from his testimony and a lot of what it looks like to pursue Jesus as our ultimate pursuit. This section of Scripture talks about what it looks like for those who are Christians, for those of us who are Christians, what does it look like for us to live in light of our citizenship? And then he gives this stark contrast of those who say they are Christians, but tragically are not. We'll jump into that in just a minute. But that's kind of a giant recap of our time in Philippians. So let me start in verse 17. We're going to go through 21. Again, this is for those of you that just got here. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I'll read this section and then I'll pray and we'll dive into our time officially. The apostle writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, excuse me, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His, to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray, and then we'll dive. God, as we uh, come before you this morning... We begin by thanking you for another day. We begin by thanking you for another day because it is a result of your grace. It's a result of your care and your provision. God, as we um, jump into your word, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would make yourself known to us in our hearts through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. And God, that you would set me aside And that this would be you at work and speaking in the lives of those who are here. God, we love you and we thank you once again for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Here's one thing I want you to kind of get a picture of as we begin to 
to, man, I'm going to use this word a lot, but this word is already written twice in this section. But as we cruise, right, or as we examine this section, here's one thing that I want you to get. And that is that our walk reflects our character, it reflects our conduct, and it reflects our conviction. In this short section of Scripture, Paul is going to use the word walk twice as a way to distinguish the difference between those who belong to Jesus versus those who think they belong to Jesus. And he has a heavy emphasis on this word, walk. Because he's not necessarily talking or using it in a way that suggests uh, the manner in which they physically walk. But he is using it in a way that suggests that how they walk, in other words, how people live their lives, is going to be a reflection of their character, of their conduct, and ultimately their conviction. How someone walks, particularly a Christian, how a Christian walks is going to be what makes them distinct. And that's going to be his push here in the beginning. And so he begins in verse 17 by saying, and we'll park here for a while. He begins in verse 17 by saying, brother, so we know that he is talking to the church in Philippi. He's not just talking to the men, but he's talking to men and women. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. So he is telling the the church in Philippi, I want you guys to imitate me. I want you guys to imitate me so that you can see how others walk, so that you can see how they place an example. And when we look at imitation, Paul uses the language of imitation over and over again in several of his letters. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Some of your translations may say, Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? The Christian life is not only one of formal instruction or teaching, but it is also one of imitation and observation. If we look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, what Jesus says is, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Imitation does not imply the subject, in this case Paul. Imitation does not imply that the person is perfect, but it does provide inspiration and it does provide influence. Paul's chief pursuit is Jesus. We've affirmed that, we've looked at that as we've walked through chapter 3. Paul's chief pursuit is Jesus and he is confident enough to invite people to imitate him as he looks to Christ. It's a way of discipleship. And so what I want to say very, very briefly, there are four things that we can learn from imitating uh, Christians. When you become a new Christian, or even as you are learning more and more in your walk, as you look to other Christians and their walk, you can't help but learn a couple of things, right? You cannot help but learn a couple of things. One of the things is that imitation is a way of teaching, all of a sudden, you as a Christian should, have, uh, should feel like you got eyes on you. Because you do. And others are going to learn from you. Others are going to be watching you. So how you walk ultimately teaches other Christians. 
Several weeks ago, I was talking to this couple. I we're a small church. I was talking to Jesse and Lee, right? And uh, I was talking to Jesse and Lee because they're awesome, right? And one of the things I told Jesse and Lee was, man, you guys are such an encouragement. I don't know if you remember, I'll tell you again. You guys are such an encouragement because they flirt a lot. And that's awesome. And I mean that. I mean that. They flirt a lot. As a married couple, they flirt a ton. And it gives me hope because here I am going in five years into our marriage, and I see them 20 years into their marriage. And I'm like, man, I want that. I want that. And so Jesse and Lee teach me what that looks like. Like, that's awesome. And one of the first things that they said was, well, we didn't know we were, we didn't know that's what we were showing. No, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. One way or another, you have taught me things to implement into my marriage. So imitation teaches people something. The other thing that imitation can do is that it helps to affirm things. As you begin to read scripture and dive into God's word and learn more about who he is and learn more about who you are and learn more about what he is doing, as you see other Christians following Jesus, it may affirm some of the things that you're reading. It may affirm maybe even some of the questions you may have. Or at the very least, it gives you a little bit more confidence to ask those questions because you might see people working through the same thing. Another thing that imitation does for others is that it helps to develop them. That as you imitate someone who is following Christ, one of the things that it inevitably does is that it helps to develop you. In other words, you grow in your own convictions. You see what they're doing. You ask the questions. You ask the whys and the whats. And you develop your own convictions as seen in the Word of God because you're looking to and following someone who, is, uh, who has placed their mind on Christ. Those are a couple of things, right? Oh man, imitation teaches, it affirms, and it helps to develop. Here's what the problem is. <clears throat> or better yet, let me, let me give you the fourth one, and I'll tell you what the problem is. The fourth thing in imitation is that if, if uh, like, when I look to, to other men and their walk with Jesus, one of the things I always see, or one of the things I have seen, is their dependency on Jesus, Right? Whether, whether it's listening to other pastors or, or, or other men in my life, I see their dependency on Jesus, that they are constantly craving his word and that they want the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal himself to them. And so they depend on him for that. And I often say, man, I want to be like that. Like, that's how I want to be. That's so awesome. I'm learning dependency on the Holy Spirit. Here's where the problem goes for many Christians. Many Christians will take the teaching part, the affirmation part, the development part, and will uh, trash the dependency part. They will take what they like, and when it comes to the things that they don't like, dependency, they'll forget about it. They'll override it. And that might be you. That might be you because you rather bank on your own self-righteousness. You rather bank on, man, uh, your own self-centered ambition. One of the things that the Philippian church learns from Paul as he's writing to them from a Roman prison is how to depend on Jesus, how to find joy in Jesus, how to have Jesus as his chief pursuit. That's what he's ultimately pushing them toward. And many times for Christians, we will say, yes, that's awesome. But then when it comes to the dependency part, like, nah, I don't really like that. I'd rather do it my way. I'd rather do it uh, the way I think it should be done. I'd rather do it in a way that doesn't really involve anyone else. I don't know so much. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't know about this imitation part, right? We begin to make excuses. 
And that's often one of the problems that happens for us internally when it comes to imitation. But here in this letter and throughout uh, Paul's letters, he challenges all the churches that he writes to, hey, imitate me as I follow Christ. And one of the things they're inevitably going to see is his dependence on Christ. His dependence on Christ and how low he thinks of himself and how much he thinks of of Jesus. And so Paul continues. Paul continues in this section. He goes on to say, brothers, join me in imitating me. Verse 18, for, now every time you see that word, not not all the time, but many times when you see that word, it's usually he's going to explain what he just said, right? We'll see that word again. So he says, for many, not everyone, but many, for many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears. So whoever he's talking about has brought a broken heart to them. He is communicating to the Philippian church with sorrow, with tears, and with anguish. He says, I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. A couple of things about that. Number one, we don't necessarily know if he's talking about the Judaizers from the beginning of chapter three and in chapter one, or if he's talking about other people. However, Many, and I would agree with this, many people do believe that he is talking about, he is talking about, not about atheists, but about people in the church. About people who have professed Jesus, but their life is not a reflection of that profession. That's who he's talking about. People who are in the church right now people who are in the church globally who say, man, I, I, I believe in Jesus, but their life does not reflect any of that. And he goes on to say that they are, that they are enemies. He goes on to say that those people are enemies. And he's not saying that they're atheists. He's not saying that uh, anything else. He's saying these are people who have come into the church, who have professed the name of Jesus, but their life does not have a reflection of that profession. Their life has no reflection of that profession. And he goes on to describe them, and he uses harsh language. Paul says, those who are enemies of Christ, or excuse me, enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is their destruction. A lot of people don't like to talk about this part. But he says their end is their destruction. What does he mean by that? He means that their end, ultimately, that they are on a path that leads them to hell that these are individuals who are in the church and who ultimately say, man, I believe in Jesus. I profess the name of Jesus maybe at some point in my life and I'm good. That's about as much as I need. That because they have professed the name of Jesus and because they say things like God is love, they will use stuff like that as an excuse to justify their behavior that they will go and do whatever it is they want to do, that they live godless lives. And he says that their end is their destruction. Now now listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's talking about the last day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, that is Jesus, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
When Jesus uses the word new, I never knew you, he is using a, a, a word that suggests intimate, personal relationship. For someone to profess the name of Jesus, but yet their life has no reflection, their walk is not a reflection of the work of Christ in them, that individual does not know Jesus. And in Matthew 7, he is very clear that he doesn't know you either. And that is hard. The second thing he says is that their God is their belly. That is, that their aim is to please their personal satisfaction and their appetite. In other words, man, they want to do all the things that they want to do. And in the midst of their life, there is no transformation. There is no worship of Jesus. There is no repentance because they aim to satisfy only themselves. And their God is their pride. Their God is their self-centered ambition. Their God is whatever it is they do for themselves now. And he continues. Their God is their belly and that they glory in their shame. In other words, they take pride and glory in what ought to bring them shame. And whatever ought to bring us shame or whatever ought to bring them shame, they glory in it. They make a big deal about it. And he gives the result of it because their minds are set on earthly things. That they're, one, they, not only do they not have the mind of Christ, but they are not chasing the prize. They are not making Jesus their pursuit because they more than likely don't know Jesus. And so their minds are set on earthly things. And what does that mean? It means that this life is the closest to heaven that they will experience. That's what it means. That their goal is not Christ, just their personal gain. Isaiah 5, this is uh, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. At the end of chapter 5, he goes on to describe God's actions of those people. God's loving patience is a long wick. And one day that wick will burn out. One day that wick will burn out. <clears throat> and so are you one of those people? Are you living passively? Are you someone who is banking on maybe, maybe the prayer that you gave when you were six years old? That doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it might mean that you're just banking on that alone. Maybe you're constantly in and out of the church. You're placing your hope in someone that isn't Jesus, and most of the time it's your own self-righteousness. And the hard truth is that he doesn't know you. Moving on. And I actually want to come back to that, but we're going to keep moving on. Verse 20, Paul says, but other translations will use that word for again. In other words, he is transitioning and he's going to explain something else. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul gives this stark picture of people who profess to know Jesus, yet their life is not a reflection of that profession. These may be individuals who say that they believe in God, but simply put, they don't believe God. And so what he does in verse 20 is that he makes this sand, excuse me, he draws a a line in the sand. He divides them. He says, all right, in light of what I just said, these are those that actually know Jesus. Let me tell you about them. This is the difference. He says, excuse me, he says that we are, our citizenship is in heaven. Here are three things in verses 20 and 21 that Paul gives for those who belong to Jesus. Okay? The first one is he provides a reality. Paul provides a reality. When he writes that our citizenship is in heaven, the word our means that he is speaking to every person who truly belongs to Jesus. He is speaking to every believer. When he uses the word citizenship, right, that is intentional language from Paul to the Philippians, and they would have understood that really, really well sidetrack, right, to give you a little bit of context as to why they would understand it, right, those who were in Philippi, most of them were former Roman soldiers. And the land at Philippi was given to them when they retired from their time in service. So these are men, these are families who understand what it looks like to serve Rome as a soldier and to know what it looks like to be a citizen, even if they are 800 miles from their country. And so he says, our citizenship. And so that rings a bell for the Philippians. It rings a bell because it means something important. It rings a bell because it's ultimately going to challenge their position, Because they understand what it looks like to be citizens of Rome and to enjoy the rights of Rome and to enjoy the benefits of Rome and to even embrace the responsibilities that come with being a citizen of Rome. And Paul challenges them and turns it around and he says, our citizenship is actually in heaven. And so it rings a bell with the Philippians, just like it should ring a bell with us. Because although we might be U.S. citizens, we are mere residents of this life just passing by. Just passing by. And as citizens, we enjoy the rights and we enjoy the privileges of our country, but we must also embrace the responsibilities. That's what it means for us to be citizens of heaven. That we enjoy the rights, that we enjoy the benefits, and there is responsibility. Let me say that one more time. Christian, there are responsibilities. I don't think I was loud enough. Christian, there are responsibilities. Okay? I was about to preach another sermon. Okay? So he says, our citizenship is in heaven. That word is, I'm breaking down some of these words to get a little nerdy with you, but that word is is also important because it is present tense. In other words, he is saying that we are citizens of heaven right now. That if you belong to Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven right now. That is such beautiful news and it changes everything in your life. Who you are determines what you do. 
What you believe shapes how you live. And as citizens, we must embrace point number two, the responsibility that we have. The responsibility that we have. Paul goes on to say, here's the responsibility. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our responsibility as citizens in this life is to await the Savior. Is to await the Savior. That's an active term. That means you're not sitting still as much as some of you would like that. It means you're not sitting still. Okay? And so it begs several questions. And we'll look at those in a bit. To await means to wait with certain, like certainty and expectation. In other words, we're not sitting still. So here are three things that that looks like. I'm giving you so many bullet points. I'm sorry. Not really. But here are three things. So what does it mean? What does it mean to await a Savior? If we're not sitting still, what is await? Number one, it means that we worship. That even though, man, we might have difficult seasons, even though we might have challenging seasons, even though things aren't necessarily going according to plan, we don't wait without hope. We have a significant hope, and his name is Jesus, and one day he will return. And therefore, we worship while we wait. Well, what do you mean we worship? I I sang earlier in church. It doesn't mean that you only sing on Sundays, but that you sing loudly in light of the work that God is doing in your life now because you are a citizen of heaven now. It means that you dive into the word of God to learn more about him, thus better understanding yourself so that you can repent of your sin and become more like Jesus. Man, that means you worship God in light of what you do on the daily. That everything you do, you do for his glory, not your own. Number two, that we proclaim. This is the one that a lot of people don't like to hear about. But it means that you proclaim the good news. That you proclaim the excellencies of the gospel to everyone and anyone. To those who don't know Jesus You have been commissioned. You have been commissioned to go and preach the good news of Jesus. He says in Mark 16, and he said to them, that's Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. If our hope is set in Christ, our hope is also set in Christ that he would save more people. He has literally sent us into the world to go proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim his message. And we believe that wherever you are, you have been sent. You're a missionary of wherever you are. Some people are like, I don't really like that. Good thing. Don't really care. Okay? We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are different people. Excuse me. We are different, but people will not know why unless we declare and demonstrate the gospel. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 17. He's really clear, and I love it. He opens and he says, 
I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Third thing is that we endure. So we worship, we proclaim, and we endure. We endure. That we grow in patience while we stand firm in the truth of the gospel. I'll talk more about that next week. But what I will say is, one of the things you'll hear next week, and even throughout Paul's letters, is that he constantly uses the language stand firm. And when he says to stand firm, he's not telling you to come up or make new ground. He is telling you to take a position and stand firm on the conquered ground that Jesus has already conquered, on the ground that Jesus has already conquered. That's what Paul is saying. So you dig your feet because stance is everything. You dig your feet. You defend, but it's on ground that has already been conquered. Stand firm in that ground. Endure. Persevere. What's so beautiful about that is that as you stand firm, it's not like you're standing firm in sand. You're standing firm on solid ground. You're standing firm in a firm or a rock-solid foundation. So you endure. Are you living passively? Do you feel like you're burning out? Are you constantly in and out of church, in and out of community? Do you find yourself making those excuses to stand or to go all in? Part of the reason is because you don't live in light of the return of Christ. If we all lived in light of the return of Jesus, it changes everything about how we live right now. Right now. And part of the reason we don't is because sometimes we just really don't believe. So let's go to, this is 1 John. This is uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. This is what he says. And now, little children, abide in him, that is, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Here's what he's saying. Put your trust in Jesus right now. Place your trust in Jesus right now. For one day, he will return. He is coming. And there will be some who will uh, be standing in confidence, and then there will be some who will shrink in shame. 
think about how different our lives would be if we lived in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church. What would you be doing? What would you be doing? Where would your hands be? What is it that you're going to be doing upon his return? Some will stand in confidence and some will shrink in shame at his return. Awaiting a Savior, because it's active, awaiting a Savior changes everything about the way we live right now. Not just on Sundays, not just at community group, not just when you pray before you eat, but it changes everything right now. That when we walk out of this building, we walk out differently because everything has changed in light of His return. And so that leads us to the third thing. It leads us to a realization. So we looked at the reality. We looked at the responsibility that we have. And now we're looking at the realization. And he writes in verse 21. So we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Him self that at the return of jesus at the return of our king our bodies will be transformed whether physically alive or physically dead our bodies will be transformed at his return what's so beautiful about it Here's what's so beautiful about it, that Christ did not just redeem your heart. He didn't just redeem your mind. He is going to redeem your entire body. He bought for the whole thing. He bought the whole thing, not just parts of it. He wants all of it. He will redeem all of you. And we will be with him. We will be with him. And we will not have redemption from creation, but redemption for creation. That all things will be renewed. That all things will be restored at his second coming. And he closes. He closes by saying that uh, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That word subject is another military word that he uses that they would have understood that the commanding officer, when he says something, it happens, right? That the troops obey, that the troops do whatever the command is, whatever the order is. He is saying at his return, he has so much sovereign power that all things would be subject to himself. That if you even, uh, man, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you even uh, struggle or wrestle with, can my body really be transformed? Then I would, uh, man, lead you to this section to point to his sovereign power in light of all things will be subject to himself. That he will speak it just like in Hebrews 1, that he will speak it and that all things will not only be sustained, but that the power of his word will create and restore all things. That all things will be subject to the sound of his voice. Church, our citizenship enables us to enjoy rights and benefits and privileges, and it also comes with responsibility. And if our walk 
is a reflection of our character, if it's a reflection of our conduct, if it's a reflection of our conviction, then what is it that your walk reflects right now? Apart from Jesus, here's, let me me back up just a little bit. If you're a Christian and you've been living passively, if you've been banking on excuses, if you have been kind of like the enemies of the cross that Paul talks about in verse 19, first thing I would tell you is to repent. To turn away from your sin and to place your trust in Christ. The second thing I would tell you is that it's enough. It's enough living passively. It's enough uh, building up on excuses. It's enough. It is enough. Repent, turn away from your sin, and place your trust in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know that you're separated from him. But the good news is, the good news is that Jesus is the mercy of God and died on a cross for sinners. And you can come to know him today by turning away from your sin and placing your trust in him, placing your trust in his righteousness, not your own. The wick will burn out. One day he will return. Either Jesus paid for your sins on the cross or you will pay for your sins in eternal separation from him. And you can come to know Him now. We're not born right with God. We need to be born again. And the only way upon which we are born is if we repent and believe and God's Holy Spirit dwells in us. He gives us a new heart, a new mind, and our life is entirely not only marked by that, but changed by that. How we live is completely changed by the fact that Jesus came to die on a cross for sinners, that Jesus came to die on a cross for selfish people, not for the righteous, but for sinners. And we can have eternal life. We can have a redeemed life by placing our trust in Him and Him alone. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, God, as we close our time, Lord, I just, I just want to say that it is, it is so easy for us to fall into our own self-righteousness. That it is so easy for us to embrace our own righteousness, our own efforts, and think we are completely justified and to believe that we are very close to you when in reality we are far from you, when in reality our hearts are incredibly distant from you. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us right now, convicting us of our sin right now, 
so that we would turn from our sin, place our trust in Jesus, and be transformed by Jesus so that we would worship, so that we would obey, so that we would proclaim. God, if there are those, my brothers and sisters, who are here, who have been living passively, who go in and out, who, man, maybe even increase on excuse or have a reason or multiple reasons, God, would you, uh, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in them? Would you remind them of your kindness? Your, Your word says that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So God, would you remind them of your grace through your kindness? Would you work effectively in them so that their hearts would be transformed? God, there are those who have, uh, are going through hard seasons and it feels like hope is very dim. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them right now so that they would experience your grace, so that they would be transformed and stand firm. So that they would stand firm in the hope of Jesus, in the hope of his return. Not an empty hope. Not feeling like the light is dimming. But that the light is very bright because their hope is found in Jesus. God, as we look to uh, giving or tithes and offerings, God, may this be a time of of worship, of continued worship, where we give you our stuff, where we relinquish the control we think we have, where this would be a testimony of our stewardship, not of our ownership. That we would be sacrificial, that we would be generous, and that we would be faithful with giving. So that, one, your kingdom would expand. Two, more and more people would come to know Uh, Jesus, as we are on mission. God, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Amen.